This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Good morning. So today's scripture reading is John chapter 15, verses 18 through chapter 16, verses 4. It can be found on page 902 in the Black Pew Bible. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Hey, good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Ron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Fellowship. I uh, have the privilege and uh, the joy to worship most Sundays in Midtown where I lead worship and preach there. But uh, with Brantley out of town and Mark recovering from surgery, although he's sitting right here looking really good, uh, I got the call in from the bullpen today. So um, it's a pleasure to be here with you all uh, to open God's word together and hear uh, what the spirit has for us this morning. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll jump into the text together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus um, in and by and because of his work alone. Thank you that we have access to you Thank you that we have the privilege to call upon your name. Thank you that you have given us your word. God, this morning as we open the word, would you um, endue us with power, the power of the spirit, 
to hear your word, to receive your word, to respond to your word. God, would you give a spirit of revelation this morning? As we hear from your word, would you strengthen us with might in our inner being this morning, that we would be faithful, faithful ambassadors, faithful witnesses, faithful to your truth, faithful to your word, no matter the cost. God, would you dispense this morning grace into this room? I ask by the Spirit and in the name of Jesus and for his glory, amen. So I don't know what you uh, felt when you heard that word read. It's a, it's a heavier word. It's a sobering word. I mean, there's a lot here that we may want to run past quickly, you know, hearing that the world will hate us and will be at odds with those who are around us. I'm not sure how you experienced that as we, as we read through that this morning. But I just want to put on the table from the jump my prayer and my desire before we even get into what's going on in this text and, and, and what is Jesus laying out for his disciples here. I have one, one desire and my prayer for us in hearing this this morning, my prayer is simply that we would be encouraged and edified to be faithful to Jesus, no matter what. The, the desire that I have is that we would, through this word, be encouraged and exhorted to fidelity to the truth of Jesus, no matter the cost no matter what it means for us in this world, no matter what it looks like as we seek to give witness to his goodness, his grace, his gospel in the world, no matter what that means for us, that we would have hearts that are set to be faithful to him, to be faithful to his truth, faithful to his person, faithful to his message, no matter the cost. That's my hope for us as we look at this text together. How we, we're going to do it this morning is I want to just give us a little bit of context, again, where we find ourselves in the, in the series, uh, and then I want to look at John 15, where we find ourselves in that text, and then we'll, we'll look at three things that Jesus is doing in this section. The first thing he's doing is he's providing like a theological undergirding for what the disciples are going to experience in the coming days as it relates to the world around them. He gives them this theological idea. This is what's going to happen. Then at the end of this, he tells them, this is what it's going to look like practically on the ground and why I'm telling you this. I'm actually giving you the reason why I'm bringing you into this reality. And then sandwiched between those realities, Jesus tells his disciples that they're not going to go this alone. He makes this remarkable promise that he is going to send to them the spirit who will help them and empower them as they seek to bear witness in the midst of this world. So we're going to walk through it that way. So the context where we find ourselves, we've been walking through what's called the upper room discourse, which is John chapter 14 
to 16. This is the sermon that Jesus gave to 11 of his disciples on the night that he was about to be betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. So he has this meal with his disciples in an upper room. Judas leaves to go betray him and he draws the remaining disciples together and he begins to instruct them that what they are about to face, both on the near horizon of his death and the far horizon of when he ascends to the Father is going to be filled with difficulty such that their hearts will be tempted to become overwhelmed with sorrow and despair and trouble. And he gives them these remarkable truths that are intended to stabilize and secure them as they walk through these hard times. Right, so the whole of this section could be seen as truths that are tailor-made for the disciples of Jesus, those that follow him, to walk with a steady heart through the midst of trouble. That's what Jesus is putting on the table. Then he comes to John 15 in a very particular way. We've seen Jesus talking about the intimate union of his disciples with him. They are those that are meant to abide in him like branches abide in a vine. And he talks about this as this glorious reality that is meant to provide security and confidence for all who have faith in him in the world. To abide in Christ, we, we have seen in the weeks that have been before, is a posture of remaining and trusting obedience to him. Jesus has said, this is what it means to abide in me. If you abide in my love, you keep my commandments, which means you take me at my word and you seek to obey. You seek to respond in trusting obedience. He says, this is what it means to abide in me. And that in that spirit, uh, place, this type of life sustained by faith will be filled with the fruits of righteousness that bring glory to God and joy to those who follow him. Now we see in this section, Jesus, although there are these remarkable, beautiful truths that are for those who abide in him and are joined to him, there will also be profound difficulties. This comes, we don't see in this text exactly, but we'll derive from it. Because the gospel of Jesus is a profound confrontation to the world. It is a confrontation to a sinful and rebellious world. It's also an invitation to a sinful and broken world, but it is a confrontation. It is a message of confrontation. And Jesus desires that his followers are aware of this as they take up the torch as his ambassadors of his ministry in the world. So this section is intend, intended to rightly orient and interpret a life of fidelity to Jesus and his mission. These words are given by Jesus in order to strengthen the heart of his followers, correctly interpret the places where their fidelity to his truth will result in apparent failure in the form of opposition. I just want you to connect with this. Jesus is telling his disciples and reorienting their imaginations and their expectations in such a way that he's trying to tell them, when you walk as my emissaries in the world, the, those that are taking my mission into this world, and you experience what you would maybe uh, interpret as failure because of opposition, because of uh, it not taking 
this is what's going on. He gives them the understanding of it. So we're going to look at that this morning. Look with me again at John 15. The first thing that Jesus does is he begins to navigate for his disciples this argument that they are going to experience hatred in the world. And this happens in John 15, verses 18 to 25. What he's doing in this, again, is rightly orienting their expectations and their experience as he prepares them for the days that are about to come, as he's going to the cross and as he departs from them. He's attempting to reorient their expectations for success as they walk in his ministry of reconciliation in the world. Jesus had taught like this to his disciples all throughout his ministry. If you remember, and and you flipped back, you don't have to do it this morning, but if you flip back to the very first sermon in the New Testament that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter five, he goes up on a mountain, sits down, and he opens his mouth, and he begins to shape, this is the markers of the new covenant community in me. And one of the markers that he says is this, blessed are you, When you're persecuted, when you're reviled, insulted, slandered because of me. Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He says from the jump, this is one of the primary markers of the new covenant community. A people who experience opposition, persecution, reviling, hardship in the world. This is from the jump where he gets us to look, look at verse 18 here. He starts this way. If the world hates you now, we have to pause there for a second. What does the world mean? Right? Like Jesus is making this big argument. If the world hates you, it kind of all hinges on this. We have to ask ourselves the question. What does Jesus mean when he says the world? He doesn't just mean the, the ball of earth that we live on that's spinning through space, right? He's not talking about the geographical reality of the globe. What he's talking about, and we've seen all throughout John's gospel, is the world to John is the realm of humanity where their values, their beliefs, their practices, and their pursuits are set in rebellious opposition to God. Right? So it's a realm in which people live. It's like a moral order. So when Jesus says, the world will hate you, he's saying sinful humanity that is marked by beliefs, values, practices, and pursuits oriented in opposition to God. Sinful humanity outside of God and his ways. So Jesus orients this reality in four ways. I want to walk through these. This argument that Jesus lays out is is pretty fascinating if you dig into it. It's four parts to an argument, and they're all brought to us by these if-then statements, and he builds on one after the other. The first thing Jesus is going to say is, if the disciples experience the hatred of the world, so if followers of Jesus experience opposition and hatred from the world, they are to know something. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know. If you have your Bible, you should like underline that word there, circle it. This is the first thing Jesus is trying to say. If you walk into this experience and you experience opposition, 
You are to have a way of making sense of that that is defined by Jesus' words. Okay, so he wants you to know something about that. When, this is like a tip-off, meaning when we walk through this, it's going to be tempting to believe something else is going on. Jesus is gathering his disciples and saying, hey, in a minute, the world is going to be opposed to you. I want you to interpret that a particular way. Know something. Know that it hated me before it hated you. So the first thing Jesus wants his disciples to know is that the opposition that they experience in the world is normative because the world hated him first. This is what we've seen lots of places in the Gospel of John. If you flip back to John chapter 1 in verses 9 and 11, the, the writer John says, the light of the world, who is Jesus, he made the world, meaning he designed it, he created it, he put his glory in the heavens, he set things in order, and he came into the world, and the world didn't know him. Then he goes, not only is that what happened, he made particular people, image bearers, those that were designed to live in constant communion with him, and he came to them and they didn't receive him. Jesus is saying, if you experience this reality in the world, know something. It hated me first. That's Jesus' first point. He wants his disciples to rightly interpret their experience. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to make sense of the normative experience of his disciples in the world. When they experience opposition, he wants us to know something. It hated him first. That's the first thing. The second thing Jesus goes on and he begins to show them if the disciples experience the hatred of the world, it's only because they no longer belong to the world. They no longer belong to the world. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Meaning, if you had the values, beliefs, practices, pursuits that defined the world, they would love you. They would high five you. They would buddy up with you. They'd give you a good job, way to go. We're all running in this together. But you no longer belong to the world. What Jesus is saying is you have a different value system. You believe different things. You have different practices and different pursuits, different measures of what it means to flourish and find life in the world. Because of that, if you experience this kind of opposition and hatred, know it's because you're no longer a part of the world. Now, I want to stop here for a minute because this one's been messing with me in all the best possible ways and in the ways that I'm kind of like, okay, Lord, I need some help here. Um, I think... I think that we have adopted, or maybe adopted is not the right word, received, and there is a temptation to inhabit in our cultural moment a missional strategy, and what I mean by missional strategy is a way of giving witness to Jesus in the world that it does not hold up according to the scriptures. Now, I think you can fall off the horse one of two ways when we relate to the world. 
One way I don't think a lot of us probably struggle with, it's not my guess when I look across here. Maybe, maybe you do something on the weekends that I don't know about. But one of the ways is the gospel is meant to be a confrontation. It's meant to be an opposition. The world's going to hate us. I might as well just be as flagrantly oppositional as possible. If I'm going to stick my finger in your eye, why don't I stick four in your eye, turn it and smile while I'm doing it, right? Like I'll get on the corner, stand up on a box and get a bullhorn and do the whole deal, right? That's one way you can fall off the ditch, right? You intentionally force the oppositional nature of it. Now, I don't think many of us struggle with that one. I think in reaction to that, many of us embody and inhabit a missional strategy that says something like this. I'm going to come into a place I'm going to be really kind, really neighborly, really friendly. I'm going to do a lot of things just like my neighbors do, go after a very similar things that my neighbors do. I'm going to smile a little bit more, maybe. Maybe I'll say bless you every now and again. And sooner or later, they will notice that there's something different about me. And they'll ask me, what's different about you? Right? Here's the problem with that. We cannot reach the world by trying to get the world to love us. It's not possible. That is not the way that Jesus laid it out. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be jerks. It doesn't mean we have to be hard. It means that we love people according to what Jesus has defined as love. And we give our lives away. We pour ourselves out for the sake of others. But it requires that we open our mouths and actually share the truth according to what Jesus has given us. Right? To be witnesses to Jesus means we have to give witness to something. The gospel is a message. It's a proclamation, right? We've all heard the apocryphal so-called statement of St. Francis, right? The preach the gospel always, use words when necessary. Here's a problem. The gospel is words. You have to say them. They have to be spoken. You cannot simply live the gospel, Because the gospel is a message, it's news, it's a proclamation, it's a declaration. God has done something about the plight of humans who have been actively rebellious against him. He made a way when there was no way. He stepped out of eternity, inhabited humanity, walked among us as a man, lived a perfect life, died the death we deserve, rose again on the third day so that if we set our faith in him, we can have life. That has to be said. It has to be proclaimed. It doesn't have to be said like I said it. You don't have to yell it. But it does have to be said. It has to be said. I got a survey in the mail this week, last week, in our neighborhood association, up, up, uh, like newsletter, whatever it is. Uh, I live in Hyde Park in Midtown. And in this newsletter, I open it up and out falls this little three by five card with a QR code on it. And it's a church in the area that I'd never heard of before, but mainline denominational church that is setting out for a new season of ministry, right? And they're trying to discern how they want to go about that in the world, 
right? In, in our neighborhood, they're trying to cast vision and do all this. So they asked people in Hyde Park a survey. So I decide, hey, I'm, I'm into churches in my neighborhood. So I, I get on, I do it. Several questions that are pretty benign about like, what do you see as good things about your neighborhood? What do you see as the plight of your neighborhood? What do you think? Last question. What kind of church best serves this neighborhood? Right? I've got this in my heart and mind as I'm prepping to preach. And I'm a little ornery that day. So I just say, one that preaches the gospel. Because what I know they're getting at, and I confirm this by going and looking at their website later. What I know they're getting at is how can we come in and in a non-abrasive, non-oppositional way, just be a good like um, addition to this neighborhood? How can we make the quality of life of people around here a little better? How can we do these kind of things? And I'm not against serving our neighbors. I'm not against doing works that promote the truth of who God is. God is like that. He is merciful to the just and the unjust. He lets the rain come on all of us, right? So I'm not above that and I'm not beyond that. But the thing that separates the church of Jesus Christ from every single other nonprofit humanitarian thing in the world is that we have a message and we have to preach it. We have to proclaim it. We have to say it. We have to tell others about it. That is what it means to be a faithful Christian witness where God has put us. But Jesus says, when you do that, just know something. The world will hate you because you are no longer of the world. Now, before we move on, I actually really love this for another reason. Jesus says this not to puff us up. Jesus doesn't try to puff us up here. Read this again with me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, right? I think a lot of us would go, yeah, that's right. I'm not of the world. Good job, me. Way to go. What does Jesus say next? Why are you not of the world? Because I chose you. You want to know why you're not of the world? You want to know why I'm not of the world? Because we got plucked like brands out of a fire. Not because of our merit, not because of our goodness, not because of our worth, not because some innate thing in me that made me pleasing. Only the sovereign choice of God Almighty came and said, I want you. So we can't boast. This isn't like ammunition for our pride. This is to comfort and settle our hearts as we experience something in the world. Again, this is what Jesus is doing. He's shaping your experience, your expectation. So when this happens, you know why. The third thing Jesus does is he says, if the disciples experience the hatred of the world, it's because servants aren't greater than their masters. They're not greater than their masters. Jesus says this in verse 20. Remember the word that I've said to you. Now, Jesus has said this several other places. Earlier in John 13, he told them, if I come to you and I wash your feet, you should love one another in the same way because servants aren't greater than the master. If the master came and served, the servants should serve. That's what he's getting at there. Even earlier than this, in Matthew 10, he says, hey, I came into the world. God incarnate. 
when I came in the world and brought the kingdom to them, they called me the devil. A servant's not greater than his master. What do you think is going to happen to you when I leave and you go on as the torchbearer of my mission in the world? If they called the sinless, matchless, eternal second person of the Trinity made flesh Beelzebul, what do you think they're going to call you who are weak and broken and bumping into each other all the time? What do you think that's going to be like? Jesus hits this again here. Servants aren't greater than their masters. If the master came into the world and experienced opposition and hatred and reviling, so you should also expect this. Again, shaping our expectations, shaping how we understand our experience. The last thing he does is if he says, if the disciples experience the hatred of the world, it ultimately demonstrates the world does not know God or the world hates God. That's the rest of this section from 21 to 25. It's the most expansive of Jesus's arguments. Essentially what he's getting at here though is ultimately, just like when Jesus came and he spoke the words of God and did the works of God and they rejected him, what that demonstrated was that they didn't know God because he was God in the flesh. And he says, that's the ultimate reality of what's going on. The rejection isn't about you. The rejection's not about you. The rejection is that they don't know God. Jesus is, again, shaping how we make sense of this. Now, the New Testament throughout picks this up, and we see it both in the history of the New Testament, right, the book of Acts, we see this actually play out again and again and again. And in the letters, they're all the time talking to each other about this. Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, uh, he says, all that desire to live godly are going to experience persecution. Peter picks it up. I've, I've meditated on this a lot lately because I think it's a quirky way of saying it. Peter picks it up in 1 Peter 4 and he says, beloved, meaning ones I love. Let me talk to you tenderly for a second. Beloved, what's his next words? Don't be surprised. What's the implication? Jesus told them they were surprised, right? Jesus told them it happened and they were like, what's happening? What in the world? I didn't know this was coming. And hey, beloved, 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 don't be surprised when this happens. Don't be surprised when this is the way things go. Don't be surprised. We see this all throughout the New Testament. The reality that a faithful witness to Christ, to his ways, to his gospel will lead to opposition, hatred, reviling, insult. Jesus gives this theological reality for us. Then at the end of this section, what he does is he says, here's the way that it's going to play out among you guys. And let me tell you why I'm telling you this. This is 16, one to four. At the end, he tells them why he's speaking these words. The first section was the theological kind of underpinning of this. But now he's trying to tell them why he's helping them make sense of their experience. These words are necessary because living through such opposition, just like Peter says when he says, don't be surprised, it's going to be different and more difficult than simply hearing about it. Look at 16 verse 1. 
Jesus says this explicitly. I'm telling you all of these things so that you don't fall away. Now, the word fall away there is a word that gets translated throughout the, uh, the New Testament as offended some places, stumble some places. It's the idea in English, maybe the best way we could say it is scandalized. The best thing is like maybe this idea of being scandalized by something. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things on the front end. So when they happen, you are not scandalized by them. Because when you experience them, you will be tempted to draw back in offense and in bitterness. You will be tempted because it will be different and more difficult. And it is for us too, right? Jesus takes these 11 disciples. I mean, I just imagine it this way, right? This is like a high point in, in the ministry of Jesus. Think about this night, like hearing these words from the mouth of the Savior, right? He's shared a meal with them. He's washed their feet. He's telling them all these glorious realities of like, hey, I'm going to leave, but don't worry. The Spirit's going to come. I'll be in you. The Father will be in you. You'll be in me. Like I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. You're going to abide with me. There's going to be fruit. Joy is going to be full. There's all of these amazing realities going on. This and this and this. And they're all like leaned in, excited, dialed. Hey, but there's going to be hard things too. And I'm telling you on the front end because you cannot imagine what it's going to feel like. But I want your mind to be shaped. And in the same way, you and I can sit here today and say these things and go, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. That sounds right. And then when we experience it, what do we do? Our reality is different than our expectations. And in that place, our hearts are tempted to become offended at God. Embittered, draw back. We can't make sense of it. We don't know how to stand. And Jesus goes, I told you before, this is why I'm telling you. So that when this happens, you do not draw back. Because... The potential for offense is really high in the places where the reality of discipleship is different than our expectations. And this is kind of like, side note, this is like discipleship all over the place, right? We start following Jesus and we take all these expectations that we have and we flood them into our relationship with him. This is what it's going to be like, right? Success means like up and to the right. Things are going to get better. Things are going to get easier. Things are going to get more awesome. And then you face reality. In that place, offense is creeping. The temptation to offense and bitterness and drawing back. And Jesus wants to shape how we see the world so that when it happens, we aren't offended. That's what he's getting at here. So he tells them why. Why am I telling you this? Because I don't want you to be offended. I don't want you to be offended. What he goes on to show them is that it's going to come in different places than they thought. Look at, look at verse two. They will put you out of the synagogues. Wait, 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 wait. What? Surely the Romans will hate us. Surely the Gentiles, the pagans will hate us. You're telling us that the religious leaders are going to hate us? The people who claim to love you? The people who say they want your ways in the world, this is where it's going to come from. 
Jesus actually tells them, hey, the opposition is often going to come from places you don't expect. And the people that are doing it, they think they're offering a service to God. They think they are walking in his ways. Jesus puts that out for them again. Why? So that when it happens, they aren't caught off guard. They are not scandalized by it. They are not offended by it. Jesus goes, if this is your experience, here's how you make sense of it. Know these things to be true. So he gives them that reality. He talks about how that's going to play out in their lives. But in between those, he gives them this remarkable promise. How many of you, as I talk through this, I know I do. This is the fourth time I've preached this and I feel the same thing every time. How many of you feel insufficient for this? It's like, oh my gosh, how in the world am I going to stand and do that? I feel insufficient. I feel insufficient. You want to know what? Paul felt insufficient. Second Corinthians chapter two, he puts it for us. Hey, Jesus is always leading us out in procession. As he's doing so, we are the fragrance of him in the world. Some people smell that fragrance and they think it's an odious scent of death. Some people smell it and they're drawn to receive mercy in Christ Jesus before God. And he asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Brothers and sisters, you and I are not sufficient for these things. We are not sufficient for these things. But that is the gift that Jesus gives to us and the promise he gives to his disciples smack dab in the middle of this. Look at verse 26 of chapter 15. But when the helper comes, when the one who will come alongside of you and help you, who will animate your labors, who will stand with you, who will speak to you, who will um, empower you. When he comes, the one I'm sending to you from the Father, the spirit of truth himself, the one who proceeds out of the Father, meaning this is God's spirit. God himself coming and dwelling with his people. He says, when this happens, he will bear witness about me. Now, I love in the next verse, he says, you bear witness about me too. But here's the wonderful marriage and the promise that Jesus gives to his disciples here. He says, yes, you go bear witness. You go out and when you're afraid and when you feel insufficient and you feel like you're fumbling over your words and you're not smart enough, you're not clever enough, you're not persuasive enough, you're not winsome enough, you're not any of those things enough. I want you to know something. The helper is actually bearing witness in that moment about me. You want to know the good news of our witness as we step out into the world and we experience all these things? The Spirit is animating our labors. When we give witness, when we step out, when we say these things, the Spirit of God is bearing witness to the truth of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that everybody will receive, everybody will love it, everybody will break down weeping and repent and, you know, run to the grace of God. It might actually produce the opposite effect. But we can stand firm in the truth 
that you are not alone. And the spirit of God, the helper, the spirit of truth is animating and empowering your labors in the world as you seek to give faithful witness to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us. Would you all stand? I'm going to pray over us and then we'll come to the table and celebrate communion together. Holy God, we just stand before you in your presence, even right now. Holy Spirit, I want to ask that the, uh, the very thing that you are promised to be in this text, you would come and be right now. Would you come and help us in our weakness? Would you help us in our weakness? God, I ask all over this room, as I know my own heart, And I'm sure the hearts of my brothers and sisters feel the insufficiency, the poverty, the inability that we have to bridge that chasm. God, I ask that you would come and breathe your life into us. Would you remind us that you have given us the gift of your spirit to help us? Even as we celebrate today, the day of Pentecost, the the day of the giving of the Spirit to the church. We are a people of Pentecost. I ask that you would come and empower us and animate our, our labors. God, I ask that you would put courage into us and grace into us as we seek to live as your witnesses in the world. And Lord, I, I do want to ask in a very particular way for those in the room who maybe even Maybe it's related to witness and experiencing the opposition of the world. Maybe it's related to things like we have seen in the last couple weeks with like pruning or um, missed expectations or things like that in the places where the reality of discipleship looks different than what we expected. God, I ask that you would come and soften our hearts, that you would keep us from offense, that you would speak tenderly to us this morning. Would you come and move among us? Minister to your people, I ask, Spirit of God. Now, as those who are sent out into the world as ambassadors of Christ, we're going to come and celebrate communion together. We're going to come and remember the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior the one who gave of his life, that we might have life through faith in him. If you believe that this morning, if you believe in Christ Jesus alone as, your, as the only way for you to have life with God and salvation, we want to invite you to come and take communion with us. The table is open for any and all who put their faith in Christ. The way we take communion here is tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. Servers up here in the front. I believe we have one in the balcony and then we've got a single serve right up here in the middle. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come and take this meal with us. This meal is a signifier to the reality of Christ. This meal doesn't afford you life with God. It doesn't afford you salvation. It is 
pointing to where we put our faith to have salvation in Christ Jesus alone. So we're glad you're here, but we ask that you not come and take this meal with us. Uh, Just stay where you're at, and those who are receiving will come and receive with joy. We'll respond through communion, through song, and as we do every week, we have prayer ministers that would love to stand and pray with and for you for anything. If there's places in your soul where the Spirit's convicting you or you're desiring something, uh, brothers and sisters that would love to stand and ask the Lord to move and work and uh, would love to pray with you in that way. So we'll respond now. Come when you're ready.